Hello once again to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. And this session, or rather episode, I should say, we will be doing a two-part series on uh, Paul Revere. Well, aren't we already talking about Paul Revere as it is? Sure we are, especially with uh, David Hackett Fisher's book, Paul Revere's Ride. But what I mean by a two-part series is not just so much um, one part tonight and then the final part uh, the following uh, episode when I'm on the air again next. But what we're actually going to be discussing here is about Paul Revere's Road to Revolution. And we should point out that his Road to Revolution was not something that happened overnight. I believe it is imperative that we learn about Paul Revere's origins. In other words, we should uh, learn some about his uh, family origins, and we should also learn about how um, how he was transformed from a young child into a young man, and uh, and the role he played in his community. After all, even our forefathers have stories to tell. In other words, they didn't become perhaps uh, prominent overnight like we have always led them, been led to believe. Now, of course, a handful of our forefathers were born into uh, well-to-do families, but a handful of our other forefathers were born into what we would call middle-class families. So, as I said earlier, we're going to be doing a two-part series for the next two uh, podcast episodes on Paul Revere's Road to Revolution, or rather the Patriot Riders' Road to Revolution. After all, I think the Patriot Riders' Road to Revolution probably sounds a lot more um, entertaining. So here is our first leadoff question for this uh, podcast episode, and this will be uh, part one of the Patriot Riders' Road to Revolution. While many of us know Paul Revere as the man whom rode on horseback to alert the people of Lexington and other nearby towns about British troops advancing, or a.k.a. the British are coming, what exactly did Revere himself specialize in trade-wise? Now, when I talk about trade, I'm not talking about trading goods. Trade is another word for vocation. Well, in the 18th century, what kind of jobs do you think um, people would have held? The jobs I think of, especially when I visit William, Williamsburg, are those that revolve around uh, being a coopersmith, um, a tinsmith, a silversmith. I think th- those are some of the um, primary occupations that I think of when I, um, when I think of colonial days and uh, jobs that people would hold. Paul Revere worked as a silversmith, and according to records from two books from the Massachusetts Historical Society, the documents per these two books um, indicate that Paul Revere himself, believe it or not, worked in the uh, silversmith trade for about 36 years. That's a long time. He worked from 1761 to 1783, and then from 1783 on to 1797. So in that 36-year span, it's very obvious that Paul Revere saw a lot. To think he started practicing the trade as a silversmith when the French and Indian War was still going on. He was still practicing the trade Ten years before the shots, before the first shots uh, were fired, or rather the shots heard round the world took place. So he was a silversmith during the um, darkest of times when Parliament was passing legislation without our consent. For those of you, or rather I should say I know most of you know what a silversmith is, but if any of you out there aren't sure exactly what a silversmith is, was and still is today, I will be more than happy to uh, explain to you all briefly what a silversmith does. Well, for starters, uh, a silversmith 
is a trade that involves making an assortment of everyday materials. These materials range from, you know, kitchenware items, even to um, non-kitchen accessories. And of course, you know, it is involving silver, but the practice itself is a work of art. So when I say an assortment of everyday kitchenware materials, for example, I'm talking about like the most basic items like a spoon to more extravagant wear like teapots, including coffee and chocolate pots, cups and serving trays. And then, of course, when I think of the non-kitchen accessories, I tend to think of uh, jewelry. Not everyone could afford to own silver, but on the other hand, if you did own silver and you say you weren't wealthy, the most basic silver item you could afford was the 101 uh, pewter trays, or should I say pewter plates and pewter cups that would not have had any kind of engraving on them. After all, if you have uh, cups, let's say silver um, cups or pewter cups that have um, your initials engraved on them, you have uh, a teapot that has um, elaborate decorations, then that should tell one right there your status in the community. The more decorative your silverware becomes, or let alone your silver objects, the greater the status you, you represent in the community, but also the more money that you can um, afford to um, have those, kind of, uh, those kinds of uh, fancy extravagant um, features on your, um, on your possessions. Most notably, um, silver um, possessions that involve, you know, silver materials like a teapot and a spoon, you name it. So, let me ask you this next question here. Can painting a portrait of someone famous have true fundamental meaning? And the answer is yes. Artists, artists themselves want us, the viewers, or rather I should say the observers, to understand there is more to a portrait besides the work itself. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking now, aren't we talking about Paul Revere here still? Sure we are, but Paul Revere is more than just a revolutionary war figure, folks. To understand his revolutionary legacy, we have to learn about his past and how that ties into his leadership not just as a as a person who is leading the rally cry to stand up against the british but how his um vocation and his leadership skills in the community all go hand in hand so as i mentioned a second ago that that artists themselves want us the viewers to understand that there's more to a portrait besides the work itself my next question to you all would be the following. I don't expect many of you all to know the answer to this one, but I'm going to mention it. Who is John Singleton Copley? And what connection did he have to Paul Revere? Well, John Singleton Copley was an Anglo-American painter whom did paintings in colonial America as well as in England. It's interesting that uh, John Singleton Copley is only... Um, there's a, a three-year age difference between him and Paul Revere. He's uh, three years younger than Paul Revere. He was born in Massachusetts, um, born in Boston. And while he did share the um, concerns that the colonies had in their unfair representation, especially, um, you know, he did share their concerns about how the Stamp Act and the Townshend duties were all unfair because it, it was legislation that not only was passed by Parliament, but it was passed without the uh, colonists' consent. So Mr. Copley does sympathize with the colonists there. On the other hand, though, he does have loyalist ties, which led him to remain neutral politically. It's interesting to note that John Singleton Copley, um, and many of you all are wondering, whom all did he paint from colonial America who was famous? He painted uh, 
portraits, most notably of John Hancock, who was a signer, eventual signer to the Declaration of Independence. He also did a portrait of John Adams's cousin, Samuel Adams. And he also did uh, portraits, most notably of uh, prominent um, British um, people. He even did a portrait of uh, General uh, Thomas Gage, whom, as you all know from my introduction, he is the uh, commander of um, British forces in North America, most notably in Boston, by the time he arrives in 1774. But, uh, but John Singleton Copley also did a portrait of him and Gage's wife being Margaret Kemble Gage, whom we will learn more about in a later uh, podcast. So yes, this man does have a lot of connections. However, because of the, uh, the what do you call it, uh, tension that's going on, given that he has connections on both sides, it's probably safe that he does remain neutral. And like I said a moment ago, like Revere, Copley also is a native of Boston. By 1768, Copley himself had become well a well-respected artist in America. And John Singleton Copley, folks, because he knows Paul Revere, and I'll tell you more here soon on what Revere does for Mr. Copley that probably um, enabled Revere to allow uh, Copley to go about painting a portrait of Revere. Copley paints one of the most famous portraits that I know of of Paul Revere, and I'll just give you a little starter um, background on it. If any of you all know the portrait where Paul Revere is sitting down, and, but in one hand, he's holding an unfinished uh, piece of work, being that of a teapot. And in the other hand, the hand is positioned below his chin. And ironically, the whole um, background is black. Could the black color represent darkness? Well, of course it could represent darkness, but to me that darkness represents America's uncertainty. We'll find out more here momentarily. But why would any of you all think that John Singleton's Copley's portrait of Paul Revere is so important? I happen to know for a fact that it is important. So I will explain to you all why that I feel that that is the case. Well, for starters, Copley's portraits prior to Paul Revere's, listen carefully, Prior to Paul Revere's portrait done by John Singleton Copley, Mr. Copley's portraits had individuals dressed in their best. When you, if you're dressed in your best, that would mean wearing fancy attire, like you know, for example, um, wearing attire that you would um, have to go to a formal uh, gala event, like a ballroom dance event. How about um, when I think of People dressed in their best, I tend to think of men in suit jackets. True or false, the portrait that John Singleton Copley did of Paul Revere was Paul Revere dressed in a suit jacket. False. Paul Revere, however, chose to be different for personal beliefs. Revere's clothing, if you look carefully at this portrait, it is, his clothing is work attire. It's work attire based, rather, and his face has a look of sheer determination. This portrait itself was done around 1770 when Paul Revere is about 35 years of age. And how ironic in 1770, that's the same year that the infamous Boston Massacre took place on the night of March 5th, 1770. It could be safe to say, on one hand, that perhaps this portrait of Paul Revere being done in 1770 could be a good year. After all, we're going to find out here shortly that this portrait has lots of messages to convey. So here we go. In front of Paul Revere, for starters, are 18th century tools for the silversmith trade. What tools might they be? 
a steel engraving needle, okay? So think about this, folks. You need to have a needle to engrave not just uh, the initials, but perhaps engrave a caption of uh, or caption or title of uh, some event that has uh, taken place that has uh, profound significance. As an example, then how about two etching burins? And lastly, a hammering pillow found beneath his arm. So there you have it, folks. Uh, for this part right here, there's more to being a silversmith than just taking um, your, um, for example, your steel engraving needle and, and doing the work on the uh, teapot, for example. You've got to have a, a hammering pillow below for various reasons. But as I said earlier, in one hand, Revere is holding the unfinished silver teapot, while the other hand, he is rubbing up, his, the other hand is rubbing up against his chin as he's unsure about how to finish the task before him. It, it is probably fair to say that Paul Revere does have a lot going on in his mind in this uh, portrait. But his pose, if you look carefully at the pose, one of his cheeks is more visible than the other. And I'm looking at this portrait on the front cover of uh, David Hackett Fisher's book that we're discussing. And to me, it looks like that it would be the left side of his face. The left cheek is far more red-looking than the one on the right on the right-hand side, which is very dim. Paul Revere is not making a fashion statement, folks. Although he might look good in the clothing attire he has on, but he is not interested in making a fashion statement. If, if that's the case, then what statement is he interested in making? How about a political one? Okay. Well, there, is, there has been a lot going on in colonial America since the aftermath of the French and Indian War from seven years ago from seven years earlier in 1763. In that time, we've seen Parliament pass the um, Stamp Act in 1765. And a year later, it was repealed, only for Parliament to pass the Townshend duties. So, it seems like we really can't catch a break. And of course, in 1770, Parliament passes the uh, Quartering Act, so it's fair to say that Paul Revere, like many other men in Massachusetts or leaders and just people in general of Massachusetts, they've, they're fed up. They just don't like the fact that they don't have a voice in government. They don't like the fact that they're not being heard. They don't like the fact that an institution 3,000 miles away is making laws without their proper consent. And interesting enough, in 1768, two years before the Boston Massacre happened, rather I should point out that the portrait itself was done between the time of 1768 to 1770, but in 1768, King George III declared production of linen to be illegal throughout the colonies. So basically, King George III does not like the fact that, um, that there are... Um, people in the 13 colonies who are producing domestic linen, and in his eyes, it is to be inferior from that of linen produced in England. He may have a point there because, for one, linen itself, like any other hot commodity, like shoes or any other kind of fabric or cloth, is going to be produced at a greater abundance in England because you have a greater uh, you have greater populations, most notably in London, for example, where you might have, say, 15 shops that make um, textiles, cloth, linen, fabrics, whereas, say, in Colonial Williamsburg, you might only have one or two at best. So, therefore, King George and Parliament know that there is a far more greater demand to ship uh, linen and other textile goods to uh, the colonies. So, Paul Revere's pose, well, rather before I should say that, in King George III's eyes, including Parliament, all fabric was to be imported from England 
Paul Revere's pose, including his clothing attire, meant to serve as an act of rebellion. <laughs> Considering that Boston had produced 125 yards of domestic linen in 1768. Hey, do you think the people of Massachusetts care by at this point? I mean, yes, they don't like what Parliament is doing, but at the same time, they're going to continue to do whatever it takes to fuel the fire to say, hey, look, you know what? You could tell us all you want about what's illegal, but you don't but you don't live here in Massachusetts. So if we want to produce this linen and other basic fundamental necessities to ensure that our people are being looked after, then we will do the opposite. <laughs> so Revere's pose being political was meant to say something like, think about this. <laughs> in other words, uh how do you like it now, King George the Third? I may not have a suit jacket on. I may have some unfinished work, but but I still have sheer determination to let you know that you're not going to stop me from pursuing my dreams and my interests. In other words, we're not going to take it no more. It's like that famous 80s song from, uh, I believe it was from Twisted Sister, We're Not Going to Take It No More. Well, that's kind of how the people of Massachusetts feel right now, folks. And besides the fact that they don't want to take it no more, Revere's pose could also send this message too. Out with the old and in with the new. In other words, dressing up in suit jackets in his eyes is out with the old. And in with the new could mean having work attire that's still attractive, even though I may not be in the upper class of society in terms of the 1-2% to who are, you know, of the wealthy gentry, but my presence alone is still presentable because I've worked like a Turk to be successful at what I'm at. The teapot he's holding, if you look carefully at this, if any of you all know this portrait, look carefully at the teapot that he's holding because there is a small rectangle. That small rectangle in the... On the outside of the teapot is, is that of a light. It's this window which still offers a beacon of hope for America in her quest to obtain independence. So the bottom line is, folks, the background in this portrait is all black. That black, as I said earlier, represents darkness, uncertainty as to where America's going how America is going to overcome these hurdles with an empire, or I should say the mother country being England, whom has turned her backs on her subjects, the 13 colonies. A handful of the other colonies may not see this just yet, but Massachusetts, remember, folks, is the colony that, that is the cradle for independence. They are the ones that are laying the foundations. And this... Um, reflection of light in the teapot, this rectangular reflection of light, this is what's holding on to the beacon of hope that somehow we still have resolve in us. We still have this light at the end of the tunnel that can get us through the uncertainty and rise to the occasion that over time we will do more than just protest unfair legislation. We will eventually take up arms and go head-to-toe with the mightiest empire in the world. So, that's Paul Revere's portrait for you, folks. That is the story to tell right there. So, when you see his portrait, yes, he's got unfinished artwork. Or, maybe not artwork, but an unfinished piece of work. But, it's more of a message... To say, hey, King George III, how about this? In other words, I may have unfinished business, but it's still going to get done, and you're not here to stop me. You're not here to stop me or the people of Massachusetts. So let's learn a little bit more about Revere's um, family background. Were his ancestors immigrants whom came to America as religious refugees. Yes. Many of our forefathers' ancestors, it's probably fair to say, did come to America to escape uh, religious persecution. 
So Revere's ancestors were a French Huguenot faith, and they had endured merciless religious discrimination per Louis XIV's reign. The French Huguenots were sadly forced to adhere to, ca- to the Catholic Church and its teachings, most notably, I would have to say, by the late 17th century. That is when it really became um, bad to where uh, Louis XIV um, instituted what was, or rather revoked, I believe it was called the Edict of Nantes, which had been around for about 100 years. And basically that edict or decree allowed for French um, Huguenots to practice their faith without having to be subjected to any form of religious persecution or discrimination. Well, sadly, Louis XIV decided to do the opposite. He did not like religious diversity. I think it's probably fair to say that we've had many uh, rulers in our time throughout history who have not big, have been big fans of religious diversity. So long story short, Louis XIV uh, went about um, persecuting many of these people or jailing them. And if those who were, um, if those who escaped persecution and being sent to jail, where did they end up going? Where, well, they fled. For those of you who were uh, with me when we talked about uh, the Swamp Fox, how Francis Marion uh, saved the revolution, written by John Aller, Francis Marion's family escaped um, from the horrors of France and went to England in, um, where they uh, were in, um, eg- I guess you could say exile, but they were also in hiding. But they were a part of a larger group of people that came to America but left so, but left leaving um, by means of a safer route leaving from England versus France. Now, it's interesting to note, folks, that, uh, you know, when you hear Paul Revere's name, it's spelled R-E-V-E-R-E. It's always easy to assume that that's the last name we know, but that's the anglicized version of his last name. Same way with uh, Francis Marion, uh, for uh, the book that you know I mentioned just a second ago, John Aller's The Swamp Fox. Interesting enough, Francis Marion's family, being that they were French Huguenots, their last name was originally pronounced Emerion. But of course, when they came to America, it was anglicized, and we get Marion. Well, it turns out that uh, Revere in French was pronounced Rivoire, R-I-V-O-I-R-E, Rivoire. Paul Revere's father was Apollos Rivoire, and he would become the first in his family to make the journey to America, which he did so on November 15th, 1715. Fourteen years later, in 1729, Apollos Rivoire would marry Deborah Hitchborn, whom would become the mother to Paul who would become the mother to future son Paul Revere. So it's Paul Revere's father marrying into the Hitchborns is how the Reveres and the Hitchborns uh, came about. So as for Paul Revere, what year was he born? All right, I will give you um, a hint, folks. The, the period uh, would be between 1732 and 1740. But maybe we should already know this because I think I did mention something earlier about an age difference between Revere and John Singleton Copley. Well, it turns out that Paul Revere was born in 1735. It turns out that that was the same year that fellow Massachusetts native man, John Adams, was born. And what do you know? These two men were born three years after George Washington was born. Of course, John Adams' cousin, Samuel Adams, was born 13 years earlier in 1722. Now, we know that... um, Paul Revere hailed from Boston. What was Boston like when he was first born? Well, obviously, Boston was not the same city as we know today. And the same could be said for any of the cities like Philadelphia, for example, or Savannah, Georgia, or Charleston, South Carolina. Those cities, while yes, they were prominent in their day and they still have prominence today, Obviously, the populations starting out were not anywhere close to what they might be today. Uh, We should keep in mind that as um, 
right before the American Revolutionary War broke out that Philadelphia was in fact the largest city in colonial America. So Boston's population in 1735, the year that Paul Revere and John Adams were born, was 15,000. And believe me, folks, that's a pretty high number in 1735. So we're looking at 15,000 strong. The city is home to 14 churches. Is it fair to say that Massachusetts has greater religious diversity than Virginia? Absolutely. And for those of you who aren't sure why, well, I'll give you a little 101 lesson here. Virginia is tied to the Church of England, or I should say the Anglican Church. There's only one religion in Virginia that you can practice, and it's the equivalent to what we know now know as the modern-day Episcopal Church. But in Virginia, for many of years, you adhered to the Anglican Church. And if you caused too many problems in terms of being um, anti-Anglican, you were either expelled from your community... Or, in some cases, you might have been executed. Now, I know that sounds horrible, but in Virginia, their way of uh, practicing their religious faith did not come anywhere close as it would have in Massachusetts when you consider Massachusetts uh, is home to a broader, diverse population of people, and therefore, because of that, you will have a a broader uh, religious uh, diversity, and that's why it's fair to say you have 14 churches. On the other hand, that's probably also not, it's also probably safe to say that just because you have 14 churches, it doesn't mean that everyone is still, it doesn't mean that maybe everyone's in harmony. In other words, yes, you're going to have some differences on stuff, but it doesn't mean that everyone's just living happily ever after. Now, it's interesting to, to note, too, that in Paul Revere's time, there were only really two ways you could get to Boston in terms of access. The first one was that you could enter through a small gate or what was, you could enter through a small gate across an isthmus, which was a narrow strip of land with sea, or rather a body of water on either side. This became known as the Boston Neck. Or you could also enter by ferry from Charlestown, which is not far from Boston. So our choices are limited, but you know what, folks? Um, that maybe that's okay too, because you never know who could be coming from the outside that may not always be a good thing. The city of Boston in Paul Revere's time was a very busy seaport. And Boston's north end, where Revere himself lived throughout most of his life, education was very essential. It was highly revered. But there was something else that was highly revered, too, that went along with education. It was called Doctrine of the Calling. Prominent uh, leaders, most notably uh, Boston preacher Cotton Mather, he firmly believed that every Christian had two callings. Number one was a, a unique calling to work in a vocation or trade. Secondly, a calling to do Christ's work in the world. We're going to learn here uh, in just a moment about uh, Paul Revere's um, callings, or these doctrinal callings, I should say. And yes, he did adhere to um, the doctrine of the calling, Christians being taught to have the two callings, the vocation and performing Christ-like work. Did Paul Revere begin his trade vocation calling as a silversmith? Believe it or not, folks, no. When he first became apprenticed to his father, Revere himself began working with gold. But as time progressed, metals like silver, copper, brass, all became intertwined into the trade known as silversmithing. In other words, it's probably a good thing not to have all your eggs in one basket. For Paul Revere, he needed to learn everything possible. Because, after all, it's probably fair to say that... that he would have had to have expected the unexpected. In other words, he probably could have. He, it's fair to say that he would probably get a customer or two with a very unique request that may not be silver related, but right on the um, boundary line between what is silver and 
what is brass or copper. The bottom line is they're all metals, and he's got to have a fundamental knowledge of how to work with these metals, because like I said, people's requests are very surprising, they can be unusual, and he has to expect the unexpected. Sadly, a tragedy struck for Paul Revere in 1754 at the age of 19. His father died. And it is fair to say, folks, that uh, in those days, young people experienced death at a profound level. We have to remember life expectancy wasn't high. It was very common for children, even before, in some instances, before they got to the age of 10 or just right after, to have lost one or both parents. So, if any child lived long enough to where their parents made it past their um, life expectancy or their, their given life expectancy, then that was really a miracle unto itself. So I can't imagine being in Paul Revere's shoes and losing his father when he's only 19 years old. But ironically, in the aftermath of Apollos, I don't know if he even went by Revere, but I've but it, maybe it's still fair to say that he went by Revoir. But when he died, young Paul Revere takes over the family business. And the rest of the family sees him now as the man of the house. Now, given that, yes, he's a silversmith, what did his occupation, though, as a silversmith really revolve around? How about fixing up items that required mending and repairing? So in other words, someone could bring in a teapot that has a... Um, it's not completely destroyed or completely um, in disarray, but it's um, it's got a patch. In other words, there's some wear and tear on it. So John Smith, for example, is going to ask Paul Revere, uh, Mr. Revere, I need for you to... Um, fix up this uh, what this uh, picture of mine because it does have a, um, a it does show signs of wearing and tearing and uh, I need for you to uh, be able to um, correct the problem you know in other words mend it to where it's not um, to where its value won't depreciate so in other words folks you know you know we don't have stores back then there are no such things as uh, retail stores back then where Okay, someone someone could go in and say, oh, you know, this uh, picture is no longer valuable. Uh, I just need a new one. You could do that, but wouldn't it be fair to say that if you have the money, invest in repairing it. And this way it will last you a lot longer. Let me ask you all this, because um, this does tie into uh, Revere's occupation. Who are the Whigs? They are men whom were patriots, ardent patriots, and they were in opposition to the crown, or let alone king and country. When I think of Whigs in Massachusetts, most notably, I tend to think of um, John Hancock, uh, James Otis, Dr. Joseph Warren, and many of Boston Whigs were, in fact, Revere's customers. How about Samuel Adams? John Adams's cousin. Now, I'm sure that uh, Paul Revere probably did some work for John Adams as well, but historians know that Samuel Adams was a frequent customer into uh, Paul Revere's um, silversmith shop. His best works were those done to a higher standard. What do I mean by a higher standard? How about going beyond the 101 realm? The more difficult the piece, the greater the skill that it displayed. How about a picture, for example, with multiple emblems and designs? So I come into Paul Revere's shop and say, Mr. Revere, I have a picture that I would like for you to build me. But these are the designs I'd like for you to um, inscribe on them. It's probably going to take at least more than um, a day to get all that work done. From what I know, when I visited Colonial Williamsburg, if you wanted to do the most basic of spoon or the most basic uh, pewter cup, that probably would take you a day 
or maybe two days at best. But when you're talking about the most elaborate of items, like a fancy pitcher, that could probably take you at least four to five days or more um, of work, and it could be the equivalent of a month's wages. And, you know, so let me ask you this, folks. If you had a hard currency versus paper money, which is more valuable, the hard currency? Any of you all know what the Spanish dollar is? It's, re it's referred to as a millet. I've seen them plenty of times at Williamsburg. And what did people do? They cut them into eighths. Why eighths? Well, wouldn't it be wise to not use all your money right away? Okay, so if I come in and say, hey, I need some uh, work done on this uh, picture of mine. It just needs some repairing. I'm going to give, say, Mr. Revere one-eighth of my of my, um, of my uh, Spanish dollar or one-eighth of um, my Spanish millet coin, and I still have seven-eighths of the coin left to work with for future references or future uh, matters down the road, not just at the silversmith shop but elsewhere. So basically giving one-eighth of my coin is a token to the silversmith given the amount of time it's going to take to make either the necessary um, repairs to the object or to make something completely from scratch. Besides success with silversmithing, Paul Revere became successful in many other things in terms of um, not just in his trade, but outside his trade, but, in, but would have involved uh, using his hands. He was successful in making frames for miniature, for miniature portraits at John Singleton Copley's request. Well, hey, if Paul Revere is making frames for Mr. Copley's portraits, then Mr. Copley has done Mr. Revere a nice favor by, get, by painting a portrait of Mr. Revere. Paul Revere also studied the art of what's called copper plate engraving, and, and, and it also involved il, illustrations for Boston's printers. I do believe that there is... Um, Paul Revere did this um, in 1770, not long after the Boston Massacre happened, and it is possible that I could even mention it later on down the road in another podcast, but... Paul Revere did, in fact, I believe, he did, in fact, do a um, copper plate engraving picture of the Boston Massacre. And if so, and as a matter of fact, I've seen a copper plate engraving of the Boston Massacre. Uh, my wife and I saw at the uh, at one of the museums in Williamsburg, and it is an incredible piece of uh, piece of artwork. But yes, Paul Revere um, went above and beyond to study the art of copper plate engraving. So, Revere himself is a man who really doesn't miss out on anything in his uh, profession. Here's another question. While Paul Revere was fulfilling his life's work from a vocational standpoint, how did he do the same as a Christian? Well, as a Christian, he fulfilled such duties as being a regular churchgoer to a prominent citizen and townsperson of his community, including the role of husband and father. In August of 1757, Paul Revere married Sarah Orne. Sadly, in 1773, though, they were only married for 16 years. Sadly, uh, Sarah died from medical complications regarding childbirthing. We have to remember, folks, that life expectancy wasn't high, and it was very common in 18th century and even into the 19th century. It may have been common for many of years where families had 12 or more children, and if a family had 12 children, their hopes were mom and dad hoped that if four or five children didn't make it, that at least six or seven would make it into adulthood. If a child made it past the age of ten, that was often seen as uh, remarkable onto itself, considering that uh, most children didn't make it past the age of ten. And I do know that uh, in Colonial Williamsburg, 
for those of you who may already know this, um, I, I would like to mention it to those who don't know. Some years back I learned in Colonial Williamsburg when my wife and I visited Bruton Parish Church that children didn't start attending church until the age of 10. And the reason for that was because um, many felt that when a child reached the age of 10 that he or she had, um, had beaten the odds and had become perhaps a little bit more immune to uh, frequent uh, diseases that um, often um, occurred. And by the time they were the age of 10, uh, that really might as well have been considered adulthood as well. But if children started attending church younger than 10 and their immune system wasn't strong, guess what would happen? They could get a congre- they could infect other members of, a, of the church congregation. And then you would have a major outbreak within the community that could sadly lead to um, multiple deaths. So, yes, many families back then did have lots of children, but because life expectancy was so short, if you, had ten, if you and your wife had ten children, you would have hoped that at least five would have made it to adulthood. Now, Paul Revere, shortly after his wife Sarah Orne died, he remarried five months later and married Rachel Walker. They had eight more children They produced eight children that were brought into this uh, new union. Was Paul Revere successful at getting things done? I would absolutely say yes to that. For starters, he served on the committee which oversaw city of which oversaw Boston's first streetlights, and when Boston experienced epidemics. Revere became the health officer, including the coroner of Suffolk County. You know, aren't we in an, still facing a pandemic right now? Yes. So what's the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic? An epidemic is a, um, an outbreak that is only confined to a certain um, region in a country, whereas a pandemic, its, impact, its, its impacts are felt everywhere. And Paul Revere himself associated, rather I should say, Paul Revere associated himself regularly with artisans and mechanics in general, considering that he himself was one of them. John Singleton Copley's portrait of Paul Revere portrays Revere as a man whom in fact is well-dressed per his trade vocation. In other words, he shouldn't be frowned upon He has gone to great lengths to making himself look presentable. Not just presentable, but to be, um, but to take pride in what he does, but to also make a political statement. And if you look carefully at his, um, at the sleeves, they all, they look tight. They look jagged, crooked. It could rep, it could also perhaps mean that that the relationship between England is in such a bad uh, stranglehold that there is no letting up. That's why Revere's facial expressions are one of sheer determination, but also one of um, unresolve. In other words, I know I'm going to find a way to finish this job, but where do I start? And where does the end result lead to? Will it be one that makes it? Or rather, I should say, will it be one that will either make or break America's quest to become independent from the mother country whom has betrayed her subjects, not just betrayed her subjects, but their most fundamental rights? Or as Thomas Jefferson would say in a, short, in a few short years down the road in 1776, the most in fundamental, inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In Paul Revere's eyes, he truly was a gentleman. I I know that for a fact, based off of what I've read about him, he was a gentleman. But in Paul Revere's eyes, gentleman status could be attained through respecting men of any occupation. In other words, treat people around you the way they would like to be treated, and in return, people will do the same back at you. Paul Revere was an artisan, a businessman, and a gentleman. He was a three-in-one package. 
you got the whole nine yards. Rather, Revere himself got the whole nine yards by doing everything the right way. Of course, when I think of a gentleman, I, you know, sometimes I think of the Virginia gentlemen who were from the aristocratic gentry. But Paul Revere was not that type. But yet he still attained gentleman status. After all, he was fulfilling God's work, not just from a vocational standpoint, but from a Christian standpoint. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground tonight in part one. I will look forward to being back on the air again when I discuss part two of the Patriot Rider's Road to Revolution. And in that part, we will learn about what life in Massachusetts is like come 1765 and how Boston is not the city that it was in the years, or rather I should say Boston is no longer at this point the city that it was before the French and Indian War broke out. On the other hand, it might be fair to say that Boston may not be, be the only city facing turmoil in the aftermath of the French and Indian War. Other cities probably are feeling the same thing, most notably, say, Charleston, South Carolina, perhaps New York City. But what I do know is that when I'm back on the air again with you all next, we're going to learn more about life in Massachusetts come 1765 and how Paul Revere is impacted by these negative changes and what he does that will inspire not only leaders around him, who share his beliefs, but that of the masses, being the people whom do not appreciate being subjected to legislation that is unfair, whom don't appreciate being subjected to uh, being taxed without their consent, whom don't appreciate being uh, subjected to a tyrant's rule where he has um, imposed all kinds of measures that make people no longer feel relevant. Well, thank you again for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again soon. And for those of you who have been listening for, to my podcasts for some time, thank you once again. Take care for now and stay safe.